joining Real Talk with Lisa Patrick. Welcome, Mr. Coffee. It is. I am glad to be here. It is so like, and I know you're kind of a little bit under the weather for our audience, but you know what? It's going to be impactful and we are going to solve a problem. Okay, let's do it. Are we fixing leaky sinks or uh, hooking up a... Uh... <laughs> hooking up a new dvd player what are we doing well we're gonna solve the problem about how do you decide when you're a mid-level executive and people are are coming after you the recruiters are coming after you do you go to a private equity firm what does branding look like what is you know what are the strategies behind that so before we get into that though i just want to ask you i mean you're a, a veteran and uh, thank you for your sacrifice and for your family sacrifice. Who pilot? You yeah. have, you know, exited multiple businesses. There's only three thousand billion dollar companies in the world, and you've exited two of them. We're going to talk about that later. You, you know, you're world renowned for your culture strategies, your employee first thinking, but more importantly, you're a dad. I am. I'm a girl dad. You're a girl dad. So I with do the have an elder son too. So if he's listening, I, I don't want to be. Uh, well, yeah, you don't want to exclude him, him right? But, right. But I'm I'm a pound girl dad. Yes. So t tell me, in the intersection of all that that's going on, personal, professional, career, what is the one thing that one event that taught you the most in the intersection of all of that? Oh wow. You know, God, life is an experience. And, you know, I, I, I tell my, my elder kids, you know, when I was a young guy and climbing the corporate ladder at GE, you know, I mean, it started in the military, but after the military, when I was climbing the corporate ladder, it's like, boy, I, 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 I apologize every day. I was a rotten dad. You know I mean? I was chasing promotions and climbing the corporate ladder and about every 18 months you're moving from one place to another because someone offered you a new title and money and it's like boy that that those those life lessons there's not one intersection there, there there's a recognition at some point you know and I, and I do tell people too it's I, I you know my father um rest his soul passed away last yeah. year but 90 you know 90 years old wow. grew up during the great depression um world war ii kind of the Korean War era. And, you know, he his informed way of thinking was living and growing up in times when everything was rationed and there wasn't enough of anything. Yeah. And so he really instilled in all of us kids kind of those values of, hey, you know, title and money is how you really measure your success in life and not your yeah. debt, but your, your cash in the bank. And, yeah. and so I was always chasing kind of title and money and, and, you know, somewhere along the way, you know, I learned that lesson that, hey, you know, don't don't forget family. Family's more important. And so, um, you know, my elder kids paid the price for that for sure. And <laughs> so I apologize to them all the time. You know, sorry. You know, I was was uh, chasing chasing a dream. And now that I'm I'm an I'm a, I still I have a nine year old, you know, and the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm doing this, call it a second time around. Um, you know, I, I'm able as a much more mature person to have learned those lessons, but there was not one strategic pivot or point, you know, where that crossroad happened. It's like, I can look back and reflect now and say, boy, I, I have been very successful, albeit for, you know, yeah. the fact that, that I learned a little bit later in life that, that 
you can't, you know, can't replace family. Family is the most important thing there is. Well, and don't you think though, like, I mean, I have twin daughters of 17 years old. They've seen me, you know, up at three, bed at 12, you know, grind, doing the grind, right? Because on entrepreneurship and building a business, it's a grind and you got to show up persistently all the time and you make sacrifices, right? And so there's a lot of sacrifices that you made. Would your older children today be, um, how would they explain the sacrifice and would it be a positive or would it be a negative or would it be a combination of both? I think it'd be a combination for sure. But for, I, I know, you know, my elder son talked about following in, in footsteps. So I had yeah. an engineering technical background and, you know, found my way to private equity. Um, he has an engineering background and he is running engineering in a yeah. private equity backed software company in, wow. in Austin, Texas, down the road. Yeah. He got his first payday not too long ago. So chip off the old block, his company sold for a, a couple billion. So wow. I think that, uh, you know, some we learn, <clears throat> I think all the moving probably made the kids a lot more adaptable yeah. as adults, you know, had yeah. to make friends, you know, moving and, and things like that. But it, it, at the same time, you know, I, I, uh, I think you learn, you know, we're a product of our experiences and you, everything in life, you know, someone once said is, uh, is an educational experience. Some are, are good, some are bad, but you learn from them all. And, and so I think there's probably a combination of both. Isn't that the truth? Well, I think we learn more. I often say we learn more from our failures than we do from our successes, but we more certainly do. Right. You know, like success is great. And we should, you know, we should pat ourselves on the back and, and everyone that's around us. Cause it all is always a team play. It's never an individual play when we make success, but I think learning from our failures and more importantly, not making those same mistakes twice is really important. And so if you were to say one failure that really gave you a pivot that really said, holy shit, like that's the time when I went, wow, like the light bulb went off in my brain. What would that be? Well, not to get too personal, but I'd say the failure of my first marriage, you know, the, that's yeah. the, I think that's the only thing in my life I ever failed at, you know, to be <laughs> honest with you. Um, yeah. Aside from that, though, when I think about business and how it relates to business, you know, I think about the young buck, you know, 30 something year old CEO for the first time. And there was uh <laughs> Don't laugh too much, LinkedIn Nation or people out there on, on Twitter or wherever you're catching this. Yeah, it's like, you know, but there, there was, if you, think, if you think there's some level of arrogance, you know, now that goes with being a, a CEO of 20 some odd years and a best-selling author and all that stuff, it's like, boy, you should have seen me in my thirties. You know, I, I was wow. a larger than life guy. And I thought, boy, you know, it's like, I have all the answers and, you know, it's my way or the highway. And, and, you know, I've got this, I've got this. And I think, you know, just. You wake up one day and you realize, boy, when I was in my 30s, I didn't know anything. And, you know, <laughs> after 21 years of being a CEO, you know, what did I learn? I learned patience. I learned maturity. You know, as I matured as an individual, I learned when to act, when not to act, when to ask for help. I think that's probably the biggest life lesson that a, a leader, you know, who's successful learns is, hey, it's okay to not have all the answers. It's okay to need help. Yep. It's okay you know, and, and I, I talk about that in some of my books about consultants yep. and working with consultants and bringing in outside help to give you expertise and surge capacity uh, that you may not have in, in your business. And I know as a 30 something year old, I used to think about, you know, consultants like, hey, there's those who do and those who can't consult. You know, hell, now I'm a consultant, you know, so <laughs> I think I've come full circle in that one. 
I like that. I like that. So do you believe that there is uh, an ability to really have a balance in life? Or do you think that it's all about integration and finding that right chemistry equation? Because I believe it's a chemistry equation based on, you know, your marriage, your relationships, your children, your businesses. I don't think there's a work-life balance equation, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, my thoughts are they're, they're somewhat integrated because I don't shut off work ever and I don't yeah. shut off being a dad ever, you know, or yeah. a, a husband, you know, or you know, so, so, I mean, there, there are times where I, you know, I think of, think of this as, as this life is going on, there are times where the business requires more of my attention. Yeah. And then there's those times where family needs more, more of my attention. And, and it, and it's not really about finding a balance and saying, okay, family time can't do anything yeah. you know, relating to work or, you know, it's now it's work time. I think it's, it's, it's trying to make sure that you're addressing the needs of, of all of those different constituencies in such a manner that there, there winds up being you're taking care of, of the needs of all. And, yeah. you know, I don't ever stop working. I just get up earlier. You know, so yeah. I, I get up at four o'clock every day. And yeah. at four, four o'clock, I know I've got two, three hours solid. You know, my, my yeah. daughter gets up at 630. Mom's usually up at, at six. So I've got a good couple of hours of 100% quiet time where if I need to focus on either follow-up, it's when my books were written, is it four o'clock in the morning? <clears throat> Excuse me, that's probably why they're not, they're not the world's best well, literary. They are really good books. You know, you know, but they, but, but, you know, it's like, it's my me time. It's yeah. four to six. You know, I'm not taking yeah. time away from anybody else. That's my time where I can really take care and knock out some things. And, you know, and then, and then the day starts going and yeah. you know, I, yeah. I, I roll with it. Well, and, and it's interesting because I, I have that same belief, right? Like I'm up anywhere between four and 5 a.m. And if I need to do something that I need to execute on and I know that my day is packed, well, then I'll get up at 3.30 to do it, right? Yeah. The reality is that is the reality, right? Like things need to be done. Tasks need to be executed on. And there's only so many hours in the day. Yep. Likewise, cool. don't look for me to respond to an email at 10 o'clock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm the same. I'm the same. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, leadership, there's a, there's a lot of conversation. My good friend, uh, it, you know, he talks about leadership from the back of the room as opposed to the front of the room. So I'm curious, cause I know you have, you know, you've a lot of thought around culture and do you believe that the greatest leaders lead from the back of the room or the front of the room? What's your belief on that, Adam? You know, without getting into semantics, let me just say that I, I learned how to be what I call a servant leader in the military and yeah. The military has been cranking out servant leaders for a few hundred years more than the business world has defined the term. And yeah. so I'm a person who, you know, who, who learned early, you know, that that it takes a collective group to find success. It's not an individual success. And, you know, as a, as a guy who really climbed the corporate ladder and held every job on an org chart, a person can hold in a services business. All, all of my, my experiences in services um, you know, I, I valued people at every level of an organization. And so when, when, you know, what? not to sound corny, but most service businesses, if you can't store your product in a box and put it on a shelf and then go get it when you need it, then your product is people. And if your product is people, you better take good care of those people. And so I, I like to think about, you know, I never manage revenue. I manage culture. 
And if I, you know, my product is people, I can't store service in a box. So if I take care of people, I get an engaged workforce. They take care of customers. Customers love it when they get taken care of and get good service. They give us more stuff and revenue rains from the sky. And so the <laughs> secret to success is, is not to manage revenue. It's to manage culture. And in a services business, you know, I call myself a servant leader. You know, I, I care about everybody. I care about you know, a person in a truck. I care about the the janitor in a plant. You know, I, I care about all of these people. They're human beings. And, uh, you know, God bless me, but it's, I have a, I have a responsibility and I'm glad some of the laws have actually changed because there's yeah. not just a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders to produce profit, but there is also a, a responsibility to take care of employees and to do what's in their best interest as well. And so I think the biggest life lesson I ever learned as a CEO was that profit and culture are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. You, you can actually do both. And I would tell you that in a to maximize potential in a business, culture has to be a big piece of that because no worker, you know, at any level yeah. in an organization is going to give you their blood, sweat, and tears unless they feel appreciated and they they feel that they're they're taken care of. So I, I've learned that I can max maximize the potential of a business. I can maximize shareholder return if I invest in people, take care of people, yeah. build a strong culture. You know, and so I call that servant leadership. I don't know if you call that leading out front, leading from the back. You know, I don't I don't know about that one, but I think it's both. Yeah. Quite honestly. Well, I think you have to lead from the front and you have to take a step in the back and allow others to lead as well. Right. Uh, Peter Clark says, yeah, as I'm a little slow on the comment, but he says, I've heard this from many successful people that the 4 a.m. is the golden hour to start. Peter's a great friend of mine. So thank you, Peter. Appreciate that. It's, well, um, hey, Peter, let me just say, let me just let me just say something. There is a very interesting study that was done by Harvard, uh, and I, I believe if you just Google, you know, time management, successful people, Harvard Business Review, I think you can find this. But essentially what they did is they interviewed a bunch of CEOs. Yep. And it wasn't what made you successful. We're just going to take that for granted. You are <laughs> successful. You're a CEO of a large company. You've been doing this for a while. And they, they looked at the attributes of time allocation. Oh, wow. And they were looking for correlations between high performing individuals and how they manage their time. And I think the, the in, most interesting takeaway to me was that almost 25 percent of the calendar time of the vast majority of these people was scheduled to be me time to be alone time, to be retrospective time. And even if it wasn't scheduled, people like you and I who get up early and create yep. that time, the most successful people in the world, you know, if you want to say title and being CEOs of big companies is, is, uh, is a measure of that, one of their key attributes that they have in common almost across the board is they spend a lot of time alone being introspective and thinking strategically and planning for yep. the future. And, and that, that, that's an interesting study. You're, you know, pe people who are out there listening might, might find enjoyable to read was, you know, it's kind of what were, what are the, what are the time management habits and how do people allocate their time uh, when they're successful? And that, that was, that was the biggest key takeaway for me in that study. Well, it's interesting because you said, you know, a lot of me time, right? Like sitting down and really strategically thinking, you know, what is that playbook? You talk a lot about playbooks look like. And when you were talking about culture, it's interesting because I 
co-founded a company called Belongify. And our mantra really is we put the me and the we back in the right kind of way. And it's all about a people first driven organization, right? And it starts with the leadership. And how do you really create those conditions for people, not just to belong, but what you talked about, to thrive, right? To excel, to be able to outperform each other, to be able to feel safe in a, in a comfortable way that they can show up as themselves and really have that meaningful contribution. It's really important. And it does start at leadership. So, you know, what does, how does that play uh, a role for a CEO who's thinking about exiting a company and is thinking about moving over to the private equity firm of another company that is owned by private equity. What is that? How does that play a role? So I think anybody who owns a business, you know, God bless you um, to be successful, to create an empire, a business, regardless of, of what size, you know, if you have an asset built that you're potentially thinking about, about monetizing, um, I, I I think of it in many different stages. First, I think, when is the right time to sell? When is the right time to bring in a partner? Uh, I, I wrote an article for Forbes not too long ago where I, I coined the rule of 130, which is take your age, take the amount of your net worth that's tied up in an illiquid asset known as your business. If it's over 130, that seems to be about the right number where it's time to think about doing something. Um, this world is so volatile and is moving so fast that I think, Many people who are out there sitting on, on large personal assets that are illiquid really ought to be evaluating how do I potentially monetize, get some chips off the table and diversify my personal world in case something goes south in the world or impacts my business. And it could it happens. It just happens. Yeah. And the amount of of these events, I'll say, that are happening in the world today seem to be happening more frequently and 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 to some degree more extreme you know wars do happen look at ukraine yep. and you know unfortunately planes do fly into buildings from time to time and there <laughs> there are pandemics and businesses are shuttered you know these things can happen and when they do it can have a huge negative impact on a, on a person so i think a person needs to really think about risk and how to de-risk their life, you know, in their family's protection, because that business you value so much today, where all your money's tied up, could get hammered, it could get hit hard, and leave you then with, with, without that, that umbrella to give you that, that, that coverage in the rain. And so I think it's, it's important to understand and identify that you've got risk. So once you've decided, yep. I'm going to do something, then I think a lot of entrepreneurs, unfortunately, just get up at the last second, and they think, I'm going to sell my business today. And you know what? I'm pretty good at running a company and I built this thing and it's a lot of money and I got a lot of money and I got a nice house and, you know, there's a lot of money, you know, and so I know exactly what I'm doing when it's time to sell. And that's the biggest mistake I find entrepreneurs making is a guy who's bought, you know, dozens and dozens of businesses yep. and has built, you know, billion dollar businesses. Um, you know, I, I can tell you that uh, uh, the, the world and universe of buyers is very sophisticated and they can smell a novice, you know, in five minutes. I, I could ask a few questions and know I'm dealing with a novice. And if I was a, an evil person who wanted to take advantage yeah. of somebody, I could. I'm yeah. not and I don't. But those sharks are out there and they're real. So, you know, I, I think people wake up, you know, and selling a business is a mindset. You know, I want to maximize the potential. But more importantly, I want the right outcome. 
You know, am yeah. I going to keep working? You know, am I young and just diversifying assets and want to keep rolling? You know, or am I 70 and want to ride off to the cabin, you know, and, and go fishing every day? You know, what am I trying to accomplish? And then think about who all the potential buyers are for that business and which ones potentially align better with what it is that I'm trying to accomplish. Once you've navigated all of that, you know, I believe heavily in hiring a competent team of professionals to help you do tax planning and trust assessments and, and, and help you put the structure in place to deal with the windfall that you're about to receive. And let's make sure we've got competent legal counsel to make sure that our contract is optimized and we're not being taken advantage of as a seller. And let's make sure that we've got the proper representation, whether it's an investment bank, a broker, dealer, somebody to help us get maximum value for that business while accomplishing the goals. And sometimes it takes a while to get a business prepared for sale when your goal and objective is maximize the potential outcome. But once you become a seller, then be a seller. And certainly private equity is the largest economic force on the planet today. Uh, if you took their five trillion plus in assets under management and said, let's find from a GDP perspective, you know, this would be the third largest economic force on the planet behind the U.S. and China. And literally more than 50 percent of all merger and acquisition activity on the planet involves private equity on one side of the table, the other or both. So the end result of that is. If you're a business seller, there's a better than 50-50 chance you're going to be selling to private equity, either a strategic buyer who's doing a roll-up that's going to put you with a collection of other companies, or potentially they're going to make you a platform and back you while they then work with you to build that empire um, you know, moving forward. So if I'm 70 and I'm wanting to go to the lake, you know, I'm probably not wanting to be a platform for a private equity <laughs> firm that wants me to work twice as hard as I was working for the next five years, you know, and sell it again. Maybe I want a strategic who is owned by private equity. So I get some of the benefits of the rollover equity and, and the potential upside of, of, of the investment, well, they- but I'm not the one in the limelight per se, you know, I'm a cog in a wheel um, and so there's so many different variations, you know, out there, but, but, you know, is private equity a force to be reckoned with? Sure. And unfortunately, I really hate to say it, but you know, I, I wrote the, the first book up there, the private equity playbook was to try to educate and provide a, a, a call it a, a primer, a primer of, of just basic yeah. understanding, because I can't tell you how many times now I've gone into a room with a hundred accomplished executives or more and given a basic 10 question quiz on private equity that you could get all the answers to in that book and And no one passes. Yeah. They they think they understand it, but they really don't. And so, boy, that's a long answer to a a short question, but you know, it was a long answer, but it was a very detailed and very good answer. (laughs) We have a commercial to go to, but when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about, the differences of the two different buyers, your strategic buyer and your financial buyer for people. Sure. Okay. So let's just go pop over to uh, our commercial break here. Entrepreneurs who start a business ever get to a million dollars in revenue. How many, how many, how many percentage billions? <laughs> Only 4% of the 7% who get to a million in revenue get to 10 million. And how many times did you do it? 
Oh, dude. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> As an engineer and a pilot, that in life, we need a plan. Complete plan. Things change. I was a CEO when planes flew into buildings, during great recessions, during pandemics. Life throws us curveballs. They seem to be coming faster than they used to nowadays. And you have to be able to adjust. But you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to you just for a second about a, an exercise. You know, I, I, I teach this, I'll get to that in a minute. But you know, if I told all of you, go get in a car and drive, you'd be like, yeah, okay, I can do that. This dude's crazy, I have no idea what the hell he's talking about. Where would you go? Most people would probably stay within five minutes of this hotel thinking, screw this LA traffic and like, this guy's nuts, I'm going back to the hotel. It's like, that is people's life. They're not planning. But if I told y'all, get in a car and let's drive to New York City. I'm gonna come over here and embarrass these people, huh? <laughs> let's, let's go to New York City. Well, now you can say to yourself, well, God, unless I drink a 12 pack of Red Bull, I'm gonna have to stop. I'm gonna have to pee. I'm gonna have to get food. I gotta. I'm probably gonna have somewhere I'm gonna sleep. Who's gonna be the cats and the dogs and get my mail? There's all these things that you would then think about if you knew where your destination was. Welcome to Viva Las Vegas. <laughs> Just went through three security doors and we're at the Palms Place penthouse. Let's go check it out. Come on with me. And we couldn't get Ryan Reynolds, so the next best thing, we brought aviation gin. Okay, guys, let's get out there and make a difference. And that is social media was meant to connect people, to build meaningful relationships. And as society evolves, the big players didn't because the big players said, well, you know what, we are going to do what we know how to do, which is we're going to sell ads. And this is everybody connecting, people meeting each other, discovering interesting things about people. And that was the vision that we had to be. This guy's got the right idea. Because people were asking me the same question. So why were they coming to me? I must have something unique to offer them. And how can I help them create that transformation? That's how I figured out what my superpower was. All right, we're back. All right. Okay, so exiting, we have two kinds of buyers. We've got a strategic buyer and we have a financial buyer. Tell us a little bit about the difference between the two and do we plan when we start our business to think about those buyers in mind as an exit? So I, I think when we start a business, let's answer that part first. When we start a business, we start with the mindset that at some point down the road, we are going to sell this business, yeah. period, you know, full stop. Whatever we've created, this empire at some point needs to get monetized. So I need to be conscious of that 
as I'm building the enterprise, as I'm, I'm growing the business and thinking about what are the things that I need to do to make this business attractive to a potential buyer, you don't necessarily need to know who that buyer is when you're starting, but you, 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 know, you kind of need to build to sell, you know, and, and have that in mind. If you can do that, that's great. If not, you know, you can get any business prepared for sale at, at some point, And it, it just takes a little bit of time to, to, to do that. But when I, when I think about strategic buyers and I think about um, financial buyers, you know, two separate type types of classes, you know, so, so first of all, a strategic buyer simply stated is just when one company buys another. That's it. Doesn't matter, you know, how big they are, whether they're owned by private equity, whether they are public or private. When one company buys another company, you know, Facebook buys WhatsApp, you know, when something like that happens in the acquisition, world, right? By you know, acquisition. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it would be, you know, it's a merger, it's an acquisition. When one company buys another company, that that's a strategic buyer. A strategic buyer is an entity, you know, it's a company buying another company. Yeah. And Within that universe, there's usually two different kinds of strategic buyers. So, and I'm not thinking public-private. I'm thinking there's turn the lights on, turn the lights off. And so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what I, I have to say, when I read the book, I'm like, oh my God, that's brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> so you, you, you got that graphic flew up there. So, so think of it this way. Let's say, you know, and I've run and built companies in both ways. So yep. one company I built, I was a strategic buyer because I was a company buying 34 other companies, putting them wow. together. But essentially, I was jettisoning the entrepreneur who founded them, maybe giving them a one-year consulting agreement. And I was essentially fully integrating the businesses into the mothership. And then the entrepreneur would typically ride off into the sunset. In 34 cases, only one time did the entrepreneur stay in the organization. Wow. And so I'm a strategic buyer turning the lights off is a colloquialism for, you know, as you're walking out the door because I fully integrated, you're going to turn the lights off on your business and yeah. your empire and your name and it's gone and, and I'm taking over. Um, and, and so when would that be attractive? Oh, for the person who's 70 that wants to retire and, you know, says, hey, I'm done. No yep. more game left. I want to go relax and see the grandkids or whatever. It's like, you know, hey, that's a perfect fit. Compare and contrast that, though. You know, my brother and I own an insurance agency for 15 years. And my brother was in his 60s. His name's Mike. Hi, hi Mike, if you're watching. <laughs> and, and Mike wasn't ready to retire. So in his case, a strategic buyer who would keep the lights on would be attractive. And so... Yep. In the last company I built that was a roll-up, I bought 23 companies and 21 of the 23 entrepreneurs are still there. I would have had all 23 stay, but a couple really were 70 and wanted to retire. And so, you know, there are different ways of doing that. For me as the buyer, usually it has to do with revenue and the security yeah. and the risk. So if I'm yeah. buying a business, how secure is the revenue stream that I'm buying? Does it require the entrepreneur to stay in order to de-risk the 
you know, the, the potential of losing the revenue that I just paid a bunch of money for. And if I need the entrepreneur to stay, I'm going to make them an aligned rollover investor in the mothership and I'm going to make them stay, you know, exactly. and I'm going to want them to stay. And if they want to ride off into the sunset, they better have a really strong number two, or I better have someone on my bench ready to go in and run it yep. because I need to de-risk, you know, that, that potential to lose the business that I just bought. Um, and so, there's been companies I run where I've done it that way. And then other times it's, hey, you know what? I have to have the entrepreneurs to stay because of the way the relationship selling plays out, the short-term nature of the revenue streams. And if the entrepreneur goes away, um, I can't guarantee the revenue stream. So then I'm going to be a strategic buyer keeping the lights on. You don't get to yep. leave. You have yep. to stay. <clears throat> so that's the kind of, those are the two types of strategic buyers. Those who let you leave. And those who put handcuffs on you and chain you to the door and say, no, not so fast. Yeah. I need you to be here for some period of time. It might be a two or three year commitment, but there needs to be a nice long-term handoff so that we can manage those relationships from one ownership period to another. And so that's strategic buyers couple, you know, a couple different versions of them. On the financial side, you know, a financial buyer brings a checkbook. They, they're so not a company. Let me ask you something, Adam, before yeah. you go into the financial side. So if you own a company and there's lots of you know people in the audience that own companies and they're thinking about, okay, I want to have a strategic buyer. How do they reach out to you? Like, how do they find people like you who buy companies and, you know, like, do they reach out to you directly? Do they do a Google search? Like, how does that happen for a company who doesn't maybe have the great opportunity like I do to know you, Adam, like how do they find, find people like you? All of the above. So gotcha. really the strategic buyer, the person who wants to acquire companies has some effort to build, think of it as just like a sales funnel for yep. any other activity. You know, typical for me, if I'm in an industry, I'm going to hire what's called a buy side advisor to you know who really literally is just gonna help me build a funnel of the 5,000 companies who are in my industry and I'll give a plug to Harvey and company uh, critical point partners a few that I, I work with regularly uh, and, and their their role in life is hey I'm a company I got capital I want to buy you know 40 50 companies over the next 10 years or more and they help us build the funnel that, that I load up top of the acquisition machine, here's 5,000 potential opportunities. They help me find that. So there are people out there who are doing nothing but looking for companies in a specific industry to buy. Well, I if always wondered how that happened, right? Because, you know, you hear lots about like people like yourselves and, and other folks that I know that are buying companies left, right and center. And whether it's for a finance as a financial or strategic I'm thinking, how do you find these companies? Yeah, so I do it three ways. There's three things I do. So first, I'll hire a buy-side advisor to help me build a funnel. Second thing I'll do is a part of my website will be dedicated towards sell me your company. You know, it sounds comical, but literally, if you go to any website <laughs> of a company I run, there's a tab, sell me your company, you know, and okay. you can click there, you know, and people in an industry kind of learn, hey, you know, I knew this guy, I heard of that company, knew this lady, you know, and it's like, and so-and-so bought their company. Maybe I'm going to reach out to them. I mean, very quickly, if I'm buying 20, 30 companies in an industry, yeah. um, people know yeah. hey, there is this company out there who is buying a bunch of companies in our space. And I knew that person and they're, they, they, they sold, you know, I'm going to reach out to that company. Yeah. So I, I, I want to make an inbound 
direct to me window that they can walk yep. through. So there's the tab on the website, there's the buy side advisor. And then frankly, sometimes, you know, in my books, I talk about building an advisory team. So if a, if a company wants to sell and they have the services of a broker, a broker dealer, uh, an investment banker to represent them. And really the only difference there is just dependent on size. Larger companies would have investment banks. Smaller companies would tend to have broker dealers or, or, or broker. Think of a broker as a realtor for a business. You know, a realtor helps you buy and sell a house. A broker helps you buy and sell a company. And so those people would then do the Googling and finding who's buying companies in this space. And they would reach out to me. So about a third of my deals would usually come from uh, a buy side advisor, like yep. a Harvey and company or, or a critical point. About a third would come to me from broker dealers or investment banks who are doing their outbound reach, wow. you know, yep. on behalf of a seller. Yep. And then about a third walked in my front door and came in through the window yep. on my website and they found us that way. And so I think it's a, there's a concerted effort for buyers to find companies Certainly a seller can be proactive and be reaching out to people that they know are, are buying companies in an industry or they think there might be a fit. But let's face it, we're not all realtors, right? So <laughs> it, is a, it is an area of expertise yeah. and, and people do develop a really good expertise in doing that. So seldom would I recommend that people just go out on their own and say, I'm going to be for sale. Let me go find a you know, strategic buyer, you know, that does this or that, or a financial buyer. You know, I, I think selling your business is probably the largest transaction of your entire life. And in order to do that and do it well, most people it's selling is their first time selling. And, and so they need to level the playing field to make sure that, that the sharks aren't going to eat them alive by having a team of professionals assembled worth the price of admission to make sure you're maximizing the value of the business and to make sure that you're maximizing then also um, the conditions of the sale, the, you know, the, the terms and conditions to minimize trailing liabilities or, or any other issues that could come up down the road post-sale and well, to maximize the tax benefit you know, through yeah, the trust network and, and, and all that wonderful stuff. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because you, you let, you let, I can't say her name. Sorry. Is it, you know, what are you looking for in the company before? You, it, it's Yulia. Yulia. Thank you. Uh, I think one of the things, you know, one would think as a business owner that, well, you have to be profitable to sell a company that the, the only value proposition at the table is that it's a profitable company and that there is you know, risk mitigation has happened. But is there a time when that's not necessarily the case that there might be IP or there might be goodwill attached to the company that has a value attached to it and there might not be profitable. There might be a different strategic reason. Yeah. So Yulia asked probably the best question any human being can ask. Because when you are buying companies, um, the strategy, I, I call them filters, you know, how I think yeah. about, you know, I, I think that when you're an acquirer buying businesses, you can make horrific mistakes that will bury you and your, your effort and your dreams quickly. Yeah. Um, you really need to understand and think about before you look at any business, what does good look like? What are we trying to accomplish? And there may be some financial aspects that you mentioned. You know, for me, if I'm, let's say, at 10% EBITDA margin, yep. I'm not going to buy anything below that. 
because below that I'm I'm diluting my own margins, and you know that's the the quickest train to to you know quickest way to a train wreck is to you know lower my overall earnings. Thank you, shareholders. Give me more money. I'm going to lower our, our our earnings. You know, so I mean, for me, if I'm at ten percent, you know, I'm looking for companies that are. 10 to 15% because if I buy enough of those rising tide lifts all yep, ships. Exactly. So there may be financial metrics. I'm looking for certain size revenue earnings, certain industry verticals, you know, that you know, I want to break into. Normally there's three strategies when someone's doing a, a, a you know, buying a bunch of companies, you know, generally it's like I, I'm building density in my existing business, my core business. You know, I want more of the same. Mm -hmm. So yep. I'm buying people who would, Historically, she, she thought of my my com as, as competitors. I may be looking to make strategic pivots because I don't like the the competition in my current core market. So I want to make some strategic pivots to find some blue ocean, some MBA speak for you know some new markets that I can get into where there's not as much competition, where I'm not commoditized, and I can charge a higher price and focus more on service rather than just on price. Um, and, and then other times it's, I want to extend the geographical reach of, of what I'm doing. I'm a U.S. based company, but I'm only on the West coast. So I want to get on the East coast, or maybe I'm a U.S. company. I want to invade Canada, you know, and I'm, yeah. I'm learning how to do business in mainland Europe by doing business in Canada. And then I'm going to jump across the pond and land over in the UK, you know, so there's, there's different strategies, but generally it's, I'm building density in my existing markets. I'm adding strategic capability or I'm, uh, I'm extending my geographical reach. Those are kind of my, my three strategies, but it's mostly important to understand what does good look like. Otherwise, what happens is you chase everything and convince yourself that everything is good. And when you have 5,000 targets to look at, you know, <laughs> that, that, that can create problems. I always tell a baseball analogy here just real quick. You think about a baseball player, you know, a, a person who hits a baseball, and six out of, you know, figure the best baseball player on the world ever in the history of the game was Ty Cobb. And yeah. Ty Cobb made six outs for every 10 at bats. When you're buying companies, you got to bat almost a thousand. Yeah. You got to be perfect. You know, you, you do, tw you, you buy 20 companies, maybe you can afford one to go south. 19 need to be good. And so you really need to spend time thinking about what good looks like. Now, some people would say, I am looking for distressed assets. I want to buy companies that are underperforming because I'm a fixer. Well, I'm not a fixer. I want to buy good companies run by good people who think like I do, who take care of people, you know, who have all these positive attributes. Culture is an important factor when I'm looking at businesses and I'm building an empire because I'm going to put a bunch of businesses together. And if the entrepreneurs are staying I need people who think alike that I can, you know, these are people who've never had a boss before. Yep. I'm going to put a saddle on them for the first time and I'm going to say, follow me and lead, you know, and I got to get them all singing Kumbaya around one fire. And, you know, that's hard to do because you've got different personalities. You've got different behavioral tendencies, right? Like, you know, dominance and, you know, influence and, and what have you. How do you navigate that? Cause that could be potentially a landmine. Well, so for, so for, 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 first of all, you know, I, I think um, going back to just the financial profile of business too. Yes, I want them to be profitable. Yes, I want them to have good free cash flow. Why? Because I'm going to use other people's money to buy that company. I'm going to leverage some debt, you know, on the empire to do that. Use some equity if needed, but I want to preserve that equity 
so that I can buy more and more companies. And I want to be able to service the debt that I'm going to add on to the business. So I need, I'm looking for companies that are cash flow positive, good, you know, good earnings. Their, their yeah. margins are higher than mine, equal to mine. They're in verticals that I, that I'm attracted to. And, and then you get to the personalities and it's like, you know what, if I find a great business, but an entrepreneur that I could never put a saddle on or yeah. never get them to work well with others, yeah. I pass. They're unco uncoachable, right? They're not. Yeah, I pass. You know, it's yeah. like, boy, that's a headache. I don't need, I want to focus my time and energy on growth, yeah. not on fixing someone else's problems. So yeah. there are people out there who buy distressed assets. I just happen to not be one of them. There are people who buy fixer uppers. Think of it in real estate. Sometimes people buy distressed properties because they're going to rehab them. Yeah. Great. I don't have time to rehab companies because I'm usually running them for a private equity firm, which means I've got a short period of time to hit a and home run. To, to be accountable to, right? Ex exactly. And so I, I want to buy good companies that are accretive to what I'm doing. And in that short period of time that I've got, I don't have time to fix a bunch of bad companies. I want to buy nothing but good companies, put them together, harness the collective power of those entrepreneurs and ride that to a, a successful yeah. exit. Yeah. Yeah. And so we talked a lot about the strategic buyer and we've talked a little bit about the financial buyer, which is more likely to happen in most case scenarios, a strategic buyer or a financial buyer? Boy, it depends on the industry and depends. Yeah, but right. there's a lot of depends there. So a lot of qualifiers, you know, what I'll tell you is right now, 50% of all companies bought and sold are bought and sold by private equity. However, a subset of that are private equity backed strategics. Historically, everyone would tell you that strategic buyers have the ability to pay more. Yeah. So there's more activity with strategic buyers because they can harness synergies. They can they can help you improve your operations. They can absorb your back office and infrastructure costs and leverage it across a, a bigger empire. And while that always you know, is the potential case. The, the reality is, is that a lot of times strategic buyers move very slow, especially if they're public. It could take them a year to get a deal yeah. done. It could be announced publicly well in advance and then not happen. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, they think of strategic buyers as potential. You know, I want them in the mix, but a financial buyer is going to give me certainty of close, a, yeah. a valuation that's probably in today's world of inflated valuations and inflated multiples probably going to be the same if not more and they're going to be able to close it much much faster and so i i've got an easier path with a financial buyer but i'm going to talk to the strategics because i want to keep them around and and get top value and maybe they 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 will be the best be a bidding war even you never know could, could be you know but right. but so i i don't discount either i wouldn't say either is more predominant than than the other i i, I would say if you had to just do math, there's probably still more companies being sold to strategics than there are to financial because strategic just means company buying company and sometimes private equity owns companies that buy companies. And so a lot of that M&A activity is PE driven, but it's done by a, a strategic. So if I was going to parse words in the most technical of sense, strategic probably still leads the way. There are plenty of other classes of buyers. Someone can go public you know, do an IPO, yeah. <clears throat> not a lot of that activity going on in today's world. So difficult to go public. Most people I think go public too small 
and the, the equities are too thinly traded. And what they're really doing is they're just com- you know, adding a layer of complexity to their life that is massive. You know, you still have ESOPs out there where you sell the business to your employees per se or, or yep. grant it to them. Yep. There's only 6,717 of those in existence wow. today. Um, but, you know, but that's another path. Sometimes you think of dentists or doctors or landscape companies or dry cleaners, and potentially they may sell to another operator, an owner operator who's like, yep. hey, I'm going to exit stage left. Exit. You're going to come yep. in stage right and keep running the business that I've got going. I see that, you know, most frequently in medical practices where you have a, 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 a dentist, say, as an example, who's aging out brings in a young partner, and then over about a three-year period, they do a handoff. Young person takes over the practice. Old guy walks out the door. You know, So th- there are many styles of buyer. The two most common are strategic or financial, and then the rest of them are kind of in the margins. In between. And how does, you know, we talked like before the show, we talked a little bit about branding, company branding versus personal branding. And one of the things that you said is, you know, your goal is to build a brand that people, frankly, you know, just want to own and are willing to stretch a little more to obtain. So how does brand play a role in, you know, like a better brand, a less, less known brand, like yeah. How does that play a role in, in the sale of a company or even the acquisition of a company? Yeah. So when I think of, uh, uh, th- this is a great topic. We could do an hour just on, on yeah, branding, both personal and, and company-wise. Um, it's just a coincidence, but in 10 minutes, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on with, uh, I'm, I'm doing a Forbes article on branding, you know, exactly oh, wow. this, yeah. this, this topic. Yeah. But the, the uh, when I think of this, you know, Odd coincidence, I've run three large, you know, built three large companies and all three of them I rebranded and I did each one for different reasons. And so let me give you an example. Uh, I was running a large commercial laundry company. It was called Web Service Company. And when it was started in 1947, there was no internet, at least no commercial internet. And so Web stood for the founder's initials, William E. Bloomfield. And and so... (laughs) Every time they put a name out to the city of Los Angeles, they said, already taken, already taken. Yeah. You know, so they just like, ah, screw it. I'm just going to call it web service company, use my initials. Well, 50 years later, guess what? There is an internet. And, yeah. and what now the all word, of a sudden he's a web developer. Yeah. And what the word web means <laughs> is something entirely different than what it meant in the 1940s. And guess what? Yeah. You're not going to win that battle. And so I rebranded and we came up, it wound up being Wash Multifamily Laundry. You know, why? Because washing clothes, millions of people were washing clothes in our 70,000 laundromats. And, you know, it was serving the multifamily housing community and it was laundry. So Wash Multifamily Laundry just, you know, kind of fit. And and so I, I, I would say that when you have a fresh brand with a great culture and the, the brand and the culture is reflected then in the headquarters environment. Yep. And you're bringing the universe of potential buyers in to see this thing. It's human nature. This is a cool company. I wasn't expecting this. Yep. Oh my God, I got to own this. And I, you know, it's got that same appeal to a buyer that a shiny car has to a buyer of a car on a lot. Right. The emotional attachment to it it is. And you want to develop that emotional, you know, you know, attachment early 
So, I, you know, I think of it this way. If I, if I brand a company and it's a sexy brand and it's great and it looks good and I, I build a headquarters that immerses my yep. employees in our culture and you can tell by walking in what we do for a living and what we believe in, it helps me attract talent. It helps me retain talent and yep. it helps me get maximum value for the business when I sell it. And in my own personal experience, 21 years as a CEO, you know, and, and looking at you know, buying 58 companies, but looking at hundreds over that time period, boy, I can tell you in, in my estimation, it adds at least one turn. If a company sells for 10 times earnings or 10 times EBITDA, yep. you know, a good brand make it sell for 11, potentially 12. If it's small, wow. if it's a big company with a hundred million of EBITDA, Hey, that's going to sell for one turn more. Well, that's a hundred million dollars in extra shareholder value at exit. And if it costs me two million to build that culture and and to build that headquarters, that's a fifty to fifty to one return on investment. It'll be the most profitable and single investment I can make while I own that company. So a strong brand presence, whether it's company or individual, that adds tremendous amount of intangible value because it, it makes people want to own that asset. And what I find often, unless you're Coca-Cola, most yeah. people really don't care about the name. And a lot of entrepreneurs are so married to their name. Oh my God, it's dad's name on that business. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. that's my dog, you know, or- Until they get 13 times EBITDA and then they're not so married to the name anymore. Yeah, you know, and so what I find is that entrepreneurs are often really, really attached to their names, but their customers yeah. really aren't. Don't care. And, yeah. you know, as long as you're doing the same thing for the same people and give them the same quality, that's what they care about. And so getting through a rebranding exercise, unless you're a consumer facing business that has real cachet in a name, like yeah. a Coca-Cola, you know, yeah. something like that. We all remember new Coke. And what a disaster yeah. that was. That way was. Back then. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, brand is, is the king. I think it helps you maximize the value. I think it helps you attract talent in a labor constrained market and workplace, which is what every industry seems it's to be now. Yeah. We can't get workers, but workers will flock to a cool company that has a cool brand. And I want to be a part of, you know, and so I, I think, you know, branding adds so much value all up and down the line. It's interesting because a lot of the work that I do are with transitioning CEOs out of companies, right? That not necessarily own the company, but have been working in the company for a number of the years. And they're really, truly a legend in the halls and the walls of those workplaces. But when they leave and they haven't invested in their brand, right, in, the, in who they are, it's a harder grind afterwards if you're looking to build career and you're building to to build another company right? well you you just touched on why my books exist at all yeah you know, for me i knew a strategic pivot was coming where i was going to leave being a ceo and i was going to uh, tackle you know a, a new endeavor which was i wanted to help multiple companies at a time rather than just run one something i've been doing yep. for 20 years and i was i was getting bored of doing uh, and so the book you know, the first book was supposed to be the first strategic pivot, you know, and that was to start establishing my own brand as an individual, aside from the company brands, you know, that I had built, because uh, to your point, I walk out the door, those brands are still there. Yeah, you know, and you know, but but what good is it to me? So I mean, I, I started trying to find a voice as, a, you know, as a thought leader, 
and, and by penning the books, writing the articles, you know, building the presence and social media that I, I did, and all of that was very instrumental, leading to clients down the road, even though I hadn't yet left or done the strategic pivot. It's, it's interesting because everybody talks about, oh, you know, build build personal brand to build legacy. Well, I actually think that's kind of somewhat bullshit, quite honestly, because you like say that here. I know I swore, but it's my show. I can do what I want. OK, <laughs> it's cable TV. All right. Yeah, exactly. But I think, you know, legacy, true legacy, like the Queen of England has legacy. She is going to live generation after generation after generation, people are going to know who she is. Albert Einstein has legacy, but most people don't have that generational legacy. But what you do want is you want relevancy. You want relevancy today and what relevancy tomorrow is going to look like. So I think that's what personal brand does for people is it builds relevancy. And uh, I could it, agree more. You know, it, and whether you're, what, the, it, the concepts are the same. I'm adding yeah. personal value or I'm adding, yeah. call it corporate value or company value, but they're both important. They're not mutually exclusive. You can they do are. both. And I, I think that there's a, a, a strong case to be made, certainly for my whole entire life. I can tell you about the value that a strong brand brings to the table. Absolutely. Okay, we got two minutes left and I need to be very conscious of your time. So I appreciate it. I think we should have another conversation about branding. Clearly, we have lots to talk about. Uh, but it's been absolutely, it's been a delight. Like, honored to have you here on the show. That problem solved. We solved a few problems today. Uh, and I just want to say thank you. And if people want to get a hold of Adam, you just go to Adam E. Coffee. Uh, and that's he it adamecoffee.com you got a business to sell because that's what he's looking for so yeah you know find me on linkedin you know that's that's where i it's the only platform you'll you'll really find, find me in dallas at empire builder or in yeah. dallas at empire builder with jt fox and i'm going to be there as well so i'm very much looking forward to it but thank you again and good luck with your forbes article and we've got one more comment here just to uh tracy browning says it has been an absolute awesome thank you we've got a cut great conversation thank you adam and lisa well thank, thank you for awesome. listening and uh you know hopefully it was uh was good you know so lisa i'm glad we got this done you were sick when we first tried to do this i know i'm a little under the weather today but i'm still still hanging in there you know thank, good to you know, hear good to hear because you've got an, another one to go to so thank you very much and we'll chat soon